Well, if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ the King, and I'm so glad that you have chosen to worship with us. I want to welcome everybody here at the Bellingham campus. A special welcome to those of you who are joining us at the Ferndale campus as well. And uh, a special welcome to those of you who are watching online during the week. We're really, really glad that you've chosen to be with us. Just sit back and relax, and we're going to open the Word of God and see what God has to say to us. I only have one announcement for this weekend, and it's a fairly important one. As we have been talking about how the enemy loves to take people captivity, one of the areas that keeps jumping to the forefront is the area of pornography. Pornography is ripping families apart, shredding both men and women in their image of exactly what physical intimacy is supposed to look like within the bounds of a marriage. And, and because of that, we actually want to do something about it. And on Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock here, Christ the King in the meeting place... We're hosting something as a part of a movement that's going on that's going to talk about that particular issue. A number of National Football League players have joined together on Super Bowl weekend and are actually going to share their stories about this battle that they have fought with pornography and how God has given them victory through it. And uh, it's open for anybody, male or female, one o'clock. Uh, and it's encouraged from about middle school on up is a great opportunity. You can come, hang out for an hour, and then move on to your Super Bowl party or whatever it is you're doing on Sunday afternoon. And we just invite you to really be aware of this incredible issue and, and how God has a better plan for His people. Amen? He's got a better plan. And so if you're interested in that, we'd invite you to become a part of that. We've been doing a series called The Road Out based on the book of Exodus. And uh, we're going to be on this road until God tells us to get off or Easter, whichever comes first. I have no idea how many weeks we're going to go, we're going to walk through. Uh, but if you've been, not been able to be with us, I want to bring you up to speed really, really quickly so you can figure out, you know, just where we are on the road out. It started with this. The people of God are in captivity. The Israelites are slaves in the nation of Egypt. And I want to clarify something right now, okay? I have nothing personal against Egypt, all right? This is history, and they keep coming up over and over again in history, but it's not personal. In fact, I'd like to encourage us as a church to be praying for the people of Egypt right now with all of the chaos that's happening inside of their nation. I mean, let's pray together as a church that, that the peace of God would invade Egypt and allow that to be a place of, of, uh, of where people can worship God in spirit and in truth, okay? So there's nothing personal with regards to this at all, but the people of God are being held in captivity there. And then the people of God, because they're in captivity, cry out to God and He hears them. And we've been talking about that verse over and over again, that as they cried out in their pain, as they cried out in their slavery, that God responded and that, that He heard them. And that he remembered them because he never forgot them in the first place. And that he reached down because he saw what was going on and that he was deeply concerned about what was happening in each and every one of their lives. God responds to them because he wants his people to be free, which brought us to a couple of weeks ago where we saw God chooses a reluctant leader by the name of Moses. All right? If you're a leader in any capacity... If you read the, the book of Exodus, you'll see Moses and you'll understand his deep, incredible love for people. And you'll also understand that leading people is tough because they're people and they've got thousands of opinions and they could go this way and they could go that way. And when you're leading them, there's just a number of challenges that come as a leader. And Moses just speaks into all of those lessons. And if you lead anything, you should read Exodus because you can learn some great lessons about how to and how not to lead people. Because sometimes Moses gets it right, and other times Moses gets it wrong. As we're going to transition into this today, 
God actually assigns Moses a helper, a sidekick by the name of Aaron. We're going to get to know Aaron after a little while. And so Moses and Aaron kind of become like a dynamic duo, like Batman and Robin, the Green Hornet and Cato, Homer and Marge, Holmes and Watson, Barbie and Ken, Hansel and Gretel. You know what I'm talking about, okay? So they get together, and then the Bible says this is what happens next. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. That's the song, right? Let my people go. Did anybody see that guy auditioning on America with, with that song the other night? That was so wrong in so many ways, all right? Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Just picture it, okay? Two guys walk into Pharaoh's house and demand that he releases his entire workforce. I mean, they just show up. Hey, you with a funky hat, let God's people go. Pharaoh's response is simple. No, no. Now, this doesn't look like a big deal until you realize the Pharaoh of Egypt saw himself as a god. He's like, nobody's coming in on my territory here. I called the shots in Egypt because I'm a god. And basically responds to these guys. I don't know what god you guys are talking about. So the answer is no. And I think it's a response for a lot of us, right? Someone shows up, gives us some wisdom. It's just like, what god are you talking about? I'm the god in my world. I look after my own stuff. Pharaoh responds in exactly the same way. And he actually gets angry. Pharaoh is furious and he takes it out on the Israelites. Let me help you understand what the Israelites were doing at this particular time. The Israelites' work were to make bricks for the Pharaoh's building projects. Whatever he was building in Egypt, the Israelites were there to make that happen. The bricks were made out of sand and dirt and water, otherwise known as mud. Most of us have an idea about that. And straw was used inside of these bricks as a bonding agent so that after they made them and baked them in the sun, they wouldn't just crumble and fall apart. The people were given straw by the nation of Egypt and they were expected to make a huge number of bricks until Pharaoh gets ticked because Moses and Aaron showed up and gave them a lecture. So Pharaoh turns up the heat. Exodus 5 verses 6 through 8 says this, You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. All right, make sure you get a picture of what's really, really happening here. Life is already hard for these people. Captivity is bad. Making bricks day after day, hour after hour, week after week, that is not something that's going to fill up your heart. This is not good. It's bad. And just when they thought it couldn't get any worse, just when they thought they were ready to break free, just when they thought God was going to blow in and save the day, just when they thought God was going to solve every problem they ever had because they were His chosen people, they learn a really tough lesson. And it's a lesson that's as applicable today as it's ever been before. I wrote it in your program this way. The road to freedom often gets harder before it gets better. I made the decision a couple of months ago that I needed to get back into shape. I actually ran a marathon a long, long time ago. And I made the decision it was time for me to start running again. I got the hint 
when my wife bought a treadmill for our family and placed it 18 inches from the side of my bed, all right? I got the hint when on Christmas morning I open up a package and inside is a copy of P90X, all right? So far I've done P22X, that's what I'm working on, all right? I mean, I just got it. And for a couple of months after Laurel put the treadmill right beside my bed, I just studied it. You know, I kind of kept an eye on it. I wanted to make sure that it was cool with exactly what I was picturing. And as I was sitting there looking at the treadmill, I could visualize in my mind what I would actually look like if I made the investment to get on that crazy machine. I could see myself as a long, lean, chiseled, six-packed member of a gun show. I mean, I could see it in my mind, right? But I knew something. Between what I could see in my mind and where I was at the present time, there was nothing but pain. It was going to hurt really, really, really bad. So three weeks ago, I got on the treadmill and I ran. And it hurt. Worse than I thought it was going to. My lungs hurt. My head hurt. My feet hurt. My hips hurt. My knees hurt. I mean, everything hurt. Do you understand me? It hurt. Really, really bad. I'll tell you what, I felt way worse walk, coming off of the treadmill than I ever, ever felt sitting on my sofa eating Doritos, all right? That felt good compared to how I felt when I came off of that treadmill. And it happens exactly the same way in our lives. We come to this moment when we acknowledge we're in captivity to whatever it is. We want out. And we're surprised when it actually gets worse before it starts getting better. We fight this hunger inside of ourselves that, that seems to pull us back into our old lifestyle. We battle the loneliness when we all of a sudden understand that we've got to let go of some old friendships and relationships because they just keep sucking us back into the way we were. We have to figure out brand new ways to cope with life instead of going back to our old, cho- our old choices. And it just feels like it would be so much easier if we just quit. It just seems so hard. And we so easily get discouraged. And if you're like me, you have a meltdown. I've had several meltdowns on my treadmill already. We have a meltdown, but it's okay because in Exodus, here's what you need to know. God's people have a meltdown. If they're allowed, we should be, you know, cut us some slack, right? The Bible says in Exodus 5, this happens. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you're not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Doesn't this make you want to be a leader, you know? They walk out, it's your fault, Moses. We were fine until you stirred this whole mess up. I mean, at least back then we had straw for bricks. Now we got nothing. You promised freedom. You said it was going to get better and it actually got worse. You're not a leader. You're a joke. Ooh, right? It's amazing. The people have a meltdown, and here comes the response of a godly leader. God's leader has a meltdown too. Moses freaks out. He doesn't tell the people to get their act together or say, just be patient. God's got something going here. No, no, no. He has a meltdown. Exodus 5, 22 says this. Moses returned to the Lord and said, 
Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Moses goes off, come on, God. You said we were leaving. We're still here. And here's another thing. The people hate me. You appointed me to the leader, and they don't like me. Where's the promised land? Where's my Israelite Lexus? Where are the perks for being the leader? Where's my corner office and my espresso machine? I mean, I'm getting nothing from this. If we're the people of God, and I'm God's chosen leader, why don't you go and choose somebody else for a while? Because this is not cool. I mean, he just loses it. Essentially, here's what he's saying. I thought when I showed up with God in my life, it was going to be a cakewalk. I thought all my problems were just going to package up and go away. I thought it was going to be easier. And now I found out it's harder. What's the deal with that? Okay, what in the world are we supposed to learn from this? I mean, how does this apply in 2011? All right, here it comes. At this time in history, Pharaoh is using an ancient strategy for division. That's the blank in your outline. It's an ancient strategy for division. And I'm going to tell you what his plan was. Pharaoh was no dummy. So here was the plan. Here's the first thing he tried to do. He tried to convince the people that pursuing freedom is futile. That's why he took the straw away. Making bricks without straw. Nothing is more futile than that. Pharaoh wanted to convince the captives that the dream of being free was exactly that. It's just a dream. You're never going to be free. You're going to be stuck exactly the way you've always been. You're never going to be free of your captivity. This is your reality, so here's what you need to do. Stop fighting it. You can't fight it. Your whole life is going to be bricks without straw. You can try over and over again to put it together, but every time you do, it's just going to crumble. So here's what you need to do. Just settle. Do what you're told. You can't change. It's going to be what it always is because that's the way life works. It is what it is, what it is. So don't try and change. Don't show up at church and throw something down at the foot of the cross. It doesn't mean anything on Monday. He tried to convince all of them that their hopes and dreams of walking free is futile. If you read Exodus chapter 5, you're going to see that this message of futility is delivered by a group of Egyptian slave drivers and another group of people that are not there by accident. The Hebrew slaves actually hear about the lack of straw, not just from the Egyptian slave drivers, but from the Hebrew foreman who they would have known. Why does that matter? It matters because of what Pharaoh's trying to do here. Pharaoh's trying to pit God's people against God's people. He's trying to get Hebrew to scrap with Hebrew. Pharaoh knows, if I can divide these people, they're not going anywhere. He knows, if I can get them to fight with each other, they're never going to have the energy to fight with me. And when they can't fight with me, I win and they're still slaves. He's got one more part of his plan. He thinks this, if I can create questions 
about God's plan and God's love, this is what's going to happen. If I can just make them question that God actually cares about their captivity, they're human beings, so they're going to do this. They're going to turn God into their convenient enemy instead of their greatest ally. And they're going to walk away. And when they walk away, they're stuck right here in Egypt. Pharaoh wants the people to ask the same question that he asked when Moses and Aaron showed up. What God? Where's your God now? Why are you doing this to me, God? I'm supposed to get better. Now it's gotten worse. What in the world are you up to? Do you care about me at all? Now here's the deal, okay? Some of you are already ahead of me, but here is a key truth that we've got to get. The devil is using the same strategy today. Exactly the same strategy. And here's a kicker for you. He's using it in the church. He's using it right here underneath of our noses. Let me show you how this, is, how this works. He wants to convince you the spiritual work that you're doing on the road out is futile. He wants you to believe you cannot change, so you're wasting your time. He wants you to believe you can't reconstruct your life with the power of God. He wants you to believe you're making bricks without straw and it's all going to crumble. He wants you to believe everything we've been talking about over the last four weeks is a lie and that it's completely and totally futile because you can't change. You're not that good. You're not that strong. It's the same thing that Pharaoh told the people of Israel. He wants you to believe that you can never, ever get to this wonderful place of intimacy with God. He wants you to believe it's not possible. Secondly, he wants you to turn on each other. He wants me to turn on you and you to turn on me. He wants you to start thinking that your pain is everybody else's fault and none of your own. He wants you to think that the reason they use loud music at Christ the King is so it bugs you. Nobody else in the room, it's just so it bugs you. He wants you to think that everybody here is actually out to get you. He wants you to believe that the leadership of this church is absolutely nuts. He wants to convince you that my first thought in the morning when I wake up is, wow, I wonder how I can just jack with the people of Christ the King this week. I wonder what decisions I could make to frustrate them. I wonder what I could do just to push them off just a little bit so they'll get angry and frustrated. Just for the record, I have yet to wake up on a single morning and think that. He wants you to think that the color of the backdrop actually matters. He wants you to think that because I wore a black t-shirt tonight, that I'm suddenly making a move towards the dark side. He wants you to think that all the church ever wants from you is money. And then when I say at the end of the service, if you're a guest, please be our guest. Let the offering pass you by. He wants you to think that I don't mean it when I do. He wants you to turn on your family because if you turn on your family, you will be so consumed fighting with your brothers and sisters that you will forget that thousands upon thousands of people in Whatcom County are sliding towards hell right underneath of our nose. While you're fighting with your family about what you like and what you don't like, 
People are going to hell and the devil is getting exactly what he wants. He also wants you to question everything so that you'll do nothing. He wants you to wonder, is God really good? Does God really hear me? Does he remember me or did he just forget? Did he really know what was going on because it feels like it's all just crumbling in my hands even though I did my best to put it together? Does he really love me? Does he really know what he's doing? I believe one of the greatest challenges for the church of North America is to trust when all of the stuff we think is holding our life together is gone. Church, how do you do in trusting God when you don't have any straw? Because that is where faith begins. The tactics are the same. The devil is so not creative. He was doing this thousands of years ago, and he's still doing it today. So how can we defeat this strategy? I mean, if we know this is going on, how can we defeat this strategy? Let me tell you. Number one, you need to refuse to be stuck in your old life of captivity. Don't you buy the lie. There's no road out. My goal for our church in this series is that we would all have our own personal little exodus. That we would walk out of the garbage that we put ourselves into and leave that junk behind and walk free without shackles. And that starts with refusing to be stuck in our old life of captivity. Secondly, we need to stick together in unity. We've got to do this. The de- I mean, I don't know how else to put it. The devil wins when we turn on each other. I mean, he just does. If you want to know how to do it right, read Matthew 18. It's got this beautiful little philosophy of how we're supposed to handle conflict. We're supposed to go to the person who's actually hurt us. Not that we've created a scenario in our mind where they hurt us, but we're to go to that person and talk to them about it. We're not supposed to go to our small group and ask for 25 opinions on how I should take care of that big jerk named John. That is evil. God says we're to go to each other brother to brother, sister to sister, cross it up, say it out, and if we can't get an agreement, we're still supposed to love each other. That rule has not changed. Jesus did not repeal the nice rule. It's still there. And finally, we're to acknowledge that God is God, and we are not. We are not. Okay, this is where it gets really cool. People have a meltdown. Moses has a meltdown. Pharaoh does what Pharaoh's going to do because the devil's doing what he's been doing for all of these thousands of years. And at the end of Exodus 5, the beginning of Exodus chapter 6, God starts talking. I love this part. The Bible says, Exodus 6, starting at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his own country. God also said to Moses, If I was at this point, I would be getting very small, right? 
God said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, you go and say this to the Israelites. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to you with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession, because I am am the Lord. At this point, I think Moses was going, I am really sorry. (laughs) There's no other way to read that than angry. At this point, God is saying to Moses, excuse me, little man. When I tell you there's a road out, there's a road out. You tuck yourself behind me and we will walk together and nothing can stop you because they're not fighting you. They're fighting God. I love that. But let me break apart Exodus 6. I've been waiting all week to share this. I love this part. Ferndale, are you still with me? I hope I haven't scared you. Okay. There's a phrase in there that says that God had not revealed himself up until this point. Up until this point in Exodus, God was known by the name El Shaddai, the mighty God. And now, in their hour of need, when they need someone to step in and walk them out of captivity, God says, I've always been known as El Shaddai, the mighty God, but now I'd like to introduce you to a different side of me. From now on, you can call me Yahweh, which means this is personal. I am the mighty God you just watch, but for you, My people. I'm a personal God. I am with you, not against you. I am for you as we walk out of captivity together. I'm going to be up close and personal. I'm going to touch you and be with you every step of the way. I'm going to become so personal with you that I will be a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I am your Lord, and I will stick closer than a brother. So you keep your eyes on me, your prayers on me, your focus on me. You offered you my pro- your problems, and here's what I'm going to give you in return. I'm going to give you myself. That's the message of Exodus. There's a road out because God says there's a road out. And if God says you can be free, you can be free. Do we understand it? Do we get it? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond in worship. This is going to happen in Ferndale. It's going to happen in Bellingham. This is not the end of the service. Don't bolt. Don't head out the door. I will tackle you if you try to leave now, okay? 
Because this same God that said, I will be personal for you, took on the form of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And someday in heaven, we're going to fall with the angels and we're going to sing together for eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And instead of waiting for heaven, we're going to start now. We're going to sing. We're going to stand. I want to encourage you to lift your hands and worship God in spirit and in truth because the same God who set the Israelites free is saying to the people of Christ the King in Bellingham, you can be free too. The devil's plans are old and predictable. You stay with me. You love each other. You ask me your hard questions and I'll give you difficult answers. And together, we will find our way on the road out. So we're going to begin to worship and I'm just going to invite you stand to your feet because this God is still with us and still for us and his name is still holy and he is worthy of our praise. Amen.